Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Neon, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history behind it. I'm Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're talking about the 1987 classic movie, Predator. Which means, more than anything else, we're of course going to be talking about imperialism. This is imperialism from the old world. Places like Spain and France are going to be mentioned, even a little bit of Britain. And we're also going to be looking at neo-imperialism from America. But don't worry, we'll also have lots of muscles, lots of guns, and lots of one-liners. Don't forget, you can be part of the Neon family. If you go to neonpodcast.com, you can have a look at our past podcasts and also get involved and talk to us if you want to do that through social media we're neon podcast on both facebook and twitter and if you're listening to this in an app please give us a review it all helps to spread the word Got here, Brendan. 
This guy has been creeping around since at least 1700. Not possible. We have been here for three and a half hours. Now, how many different ways do you want me to tell the same story? Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty good place. I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot? As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, and always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. Now to run a computer check on this tape and the professor. Dodge this. The tracks go off in this direction. So, let's break things down, shall we? I saw Predator, which in Britain is rated 18, when I was <gasps> 17 years old on <gasps> video. But here's the real shocking thing. We had a film club at school and we were allowed to watch films. But weirdly, the teachers didn't bother checking which films we were watching. So even though technically most of the people in the room were 17, there are a few 18 year olds, we were able to watch Predator on school premises. It's a crying shame that that just really isn't going to be allowed anymore. But I was pretty much blown away by it. And, and over the years, I obviously bought a copy for myself. I've watched, I bought a DVD of it. I've watched it on a bigger screen as well. And this is one of those films that now is over 30 years old. I know, depressing. But it's still pretty good. Even the special effects hold up really, really well. So if you're from another planet, I guess a bit like Predator, you uh, you might not know what on earth I'm talking about. So the basic story, and I'll actually tell you how the story came about in a moment, because it actually came from a joke, uh, a joke that is linked to one of the actors in the movie. Give me a minute, please, okay? So the basic story is this. Arnold Schwarzenegger, because this is the 1980s, is an action movie, so it's pretty much got to have either Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, or Sylvester Stallone in it. So this is a Schwarzenegger one. And Schwarzenegger is bringing a crack commando unit into the jungles of Central America to get this guy out. They may be mercenaries, but they tend to be search and rescue teams and not a hit squad. They're good mercenaries, Okay, so they drop into the jungle, they start hunting around, and they realize that they've been set up. That actually, it isn't about a search and uh, help rescue type CIA operative sort of mission. So, Jim being super technical there. Instead, they're meant to be taking out this rebel force of commies, because it's the 1980s again, commies, bad. Uh, however, they come across another commando unit that have been killed and hung up like trophies. What kind of horrific human beings could ever do this to a man? And as it progresses, you realize that actually they're not fighting against an enemy group. There is, to be clear, a bunch of commies which you see them blow to pieces, which shows that Arnie and his guys are very effective at what they do, and they are a powerful force. But they seem to be hunted by a creature from another planet. And because they are such a worthy adversary, the predator, the alien, sees them as true game, true sport, as it were. So if you like, this is kind of turning the great white hunter sort of on its head. And 
the commando unit is whittled down until eventually in the last half an hour-ish, it's virtually a silent movie because it's about Arnie stripped bare of all his weaponry and things like that. It's just him with his jungle skills against this predator, which has this sort of movable camouflage. So it's very, very hard to see. And indeed, what you realize is that there are sort of three reveals of the predator. First of all, you see this blur. And I remember the first time I saw that on video, I thought, oh, we've got a terrible copy of the of the movie. And therefore, it's ruined. But no, it was a super clever computer graphics of the age showing you a sort of chameleon-like reflective camouflage. So number one, it's like, oh, I can't see the predator. Then number two, you can see the predator's face. But then number three, you realize that that's not the predator's face. He's wearing a helmet. And then you get to see the real predator underneath it. So a little bit of film history from this. Uh, the predator itself was created by Stan Winston, the guy who also created things like Terminator. And the last thing that he worked on before he died was the suits for Iron Man in, in the original Iron Man movie. Stan Winston was just one of these people where, if you know your special effects, he's kind of the god of them. Uh, however, he had a close working relationship with James Cameron, and it was James Cameron who suggested, oh, you should put mandibles on the Predator to make it kind of more spider-like and evil. And the original Predator was terrible. So they ended up having to sort of reshoot bits of it. And the original Predator, because they wanted to create this sort of ripple effect on it, was shot in red. Because you couldn't have green screen because of the jungle that they're in, and you couldn't have blue screen because of the sky. So red was the thing that worked best in terms of digital effects for that. But that's the bit you, you hear some people go, oh yeah, Jean-Claude Van Damme's the Predator. He sort of was. He was in the original Predator suit. But when they completely redesigned the Predator because the studio realized this all hung on does the Predator look scary? And believe me, when you see the test footage of the original one, it's rubbish, that they ended up getting an incredibly tall guy called Kevin Peter Hall uh, to get into this super large... Yeah, sort of lizard-like African hunter vibe. Why do I say African hunter? Because for no discernible reason, this creature has what looks like dreadlocks, sort of lizard-like hanging vestiges things out of the back of its head. The design of the Predator is undeniably cool. And like that other great alien design, the alien, the xenomorph, it's just got into pop culture history. So that's a little bit about the movie. But what's interesting about the film is its creation and also something about its director too. Don't worry, we'll get to the imperialism in a moment. So... Rocky. Rocky 1, it's often forgotten, is a really gritty film. It's about a man who's using boxing to try and overcome his personal demons and to try and get out of poverty. It's a really intelligent, interesting film. People forget Sylvester Stallone won an Oscar for the screenplay on that one. Rocky II was the point where it's a chance for him to sort of overcome the great thing about Rocky, the first one. Uh, spoiler here for, for Rocky, and this was spoiled for me as a child. While I was literally watching the first Rocky, my mother walked in and said this to me, <clears throat> which I thought was, yeah, I, I still bring it up with her. But Rocky, the original Rocky, he loses at the end. So therefore, everybody wanted to see a Rocky II when he can finally win against Apollo Creed. Come on to him in a minute. 
Rocky Three. It was always seen as a trilogy in in Sylvester Stallone's mind. Once the first one was a hit, because Rocky Two was about the fleetingness of fame, because that kind of happened to him as well. Rocky's actually quite an autobiographical story for Sylvester Stallone. The first Rocky was his one roll of the dice or last roll of the dice to be famous, just like the story of uh, Rocky Balboa in the movie. Anyway, so it kept going, keeps going, keeps going. Rocky Three is about how fame can sort of dent you and you start believing in your own hype and. Uh, Rocky overcomes Mr. T in that one, played by uh, playing a guy called Clubber Lang. And so in Sylvester Stallone's mind, it was all done and dusted. But they came back to him with one more, saying, look, why don't you win the Cold War? Why don't we have Rocky fight a really bad Russian called Ivan Drago? And so he loves that uh, idea. And so Rocky IV is made. At which point, after Rocky IV, the joke going around was Rocky's now beaten everybody. The only person left to beat would be an alien or something like that. And that got did its rounds in Hollywood, and that idea of a super muscle man fighting an alien is actually sort of the unofficial Rocky V is what Predator became. And it was written by a guy called Shane Black, and actually 2018 shows Shane Black returning to the franchise of Predator. Unlike the Alien movies, the Predator films have not been uh, kind to it in terms of legacy. Some of them are okay, but none of them are absolute rock-bottom classics apart from the first one. But Shane Black is coming back to write and direct The Predator. It's called The Predator, and it's coming out in 2018. We'll see. I have no idea if it's going to be good or bad. But Shane Black does have a brief bit in the movie. He's the foul-mouthed soldier with the glasses who, spoiler, gets killed first in the Predator movie out of all the commando guys. But he, as the writer, he was allowed to have some fun in it, okay? The other thing, that the other bit of DNA that connects the Rocky movies is that I just mentioned Apollo Creed. Apollo Creed is killed in Rocky IV, but Apollo Creed makes a glorious comeback. That's Bill Duke, by the way. That's the name of the actor. Bill Duke is Mac in Predator. Uh, and actually, Predator just has this wonderful DNA with some of these other movies that are going on. Uh, sorry, I apologize. Not Bill Duke. Um, the reason I said Bill Duke is I'm about to come on to Bill Duke. No, this is Carl Weathers. Apologies, Mr. Weathers. There's, there can only be one Apollo Creed. That's Carl Weathers. He plays Dylan, or Dylan, as uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger says. Sorry. Bill Duke, Mac. Bill Duke is uh, like Jesse Ventura. Both these men are in Predator, and both these men have been killed by Arnold Schwarzenegger before. Jesse Ventura, a wrestler, and then turned into a film star. Also, his, he did serve in Vietnam. We'll come on to that in a little bit. Um, Jesse Ventura was in a movie called Running Man, and he was killed by Arnold Schwarzenegger in that. And uh, Bill Duke, uh, he was in Commando, and he says he's a Green Beret, which allows Arnold Schwarzenegger to say, I eat Green Berets for breakfast. Uh, th that is my a terrible attempt at doing an Arnold Schwarzenegger accent. And Bill Duke is killed by Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando. There we go. Uh, so... I haven't really talked about Arnie yet, but surely you know who Arnold Schwarzenegger is. And Arnie was very much committed to this role. Uh, you know, he, he this was all largely filmed in jungles. Okay, problem was the crew didn't realize that 
you you and I both think of jungles as being constantly green. Some jungles are evergreen, but some jungles are deciduous and have seasons. And they basically turned up at this jungle at a time when it, the leaves were starting to fall off, which is why it, it, there are times when it looks decidedly brown in the background. And they were doing everything possible to try and turn up the green contrast to try and make everything look as green and lush as possible. But they genuinely, genuinely were in a jungle. So therefore, because we're not sort of standing in front of a green screen, I mean, this isn't in a studio, that's why I think it stands the test of time, because when they're slithering through the mud, they really are slithering through the mud. Although, interestingly, the bit at the end when Arnie's covering himself with mud, that's actually modelling clay, and um, it, it basically drew all the heat out of him. Arnold Schwarzenegger had a torrid time, uh, in, uh, and he really did sort of brutalise himself to get all the shots that were needed. Um, he thought that he could warm himself up by taking schnapps, by drinking schnapps. Hey, he's Austrian, why not? Uh, but actually that didn't, alcohol does not actually warm you up and he was getting hypothermia and getting very drunk as well and it really wasn't working too well. So allow me to uh, now jump into a little bit of history and I promise I'll come back to the movie. The thing is this, okay, in the space of a hundred years, America has fought in the one area, one environment it doesn't have as a country. America, a bit like Russia and China, is just one of these gigantic countries that covers so many different ecosystems. Uh, people criticize, saying, oh, only 10% of Americans have passports. Now, I, I don't know, maybe that was true in the 1950s, but that's not true nowadays. About 40% of Americans have a passport, actually. And the reality is, when you look at America, there's kind of a reason for that. Because if you want to go to Arctic conditions, you go to Alaska. If you want to go to tropical conditions, you can go down to Florida. It's got coastal regions, it's got mountain regions, it's got savannah type regions. It's a, a country that is packed full of natural wonder. There's no irony here, there's no punchline, it genuinely is a staggeringly beautiful country with huge amounts of biodiversity. But the one thing it doesn't have is jungles. And yet the interesting thing is over the course of a hundred years, America ended up fighting four major wars and one minor one in jungle conditions. It's strange how America kept getting being drawn into, oh, and countless black ops as well, drawn into jungle regions, which is the one thing they've actually found it kind of hard to train for because they didn't have any. So quickly going through the wars of America in jungles is in 1898, they had a warship, the Americans had a warship, the USS Maine, and it was in Havana port, and it blew up. Now, this is something that is still being debated more than 100 years later. Was it somehow sabotaged by the Americans to start a war with Spain over Cuba? Was this Spanish infiltrators trying to sort of get one up on the Americans? Or was it just an accident? All three of those could have happened. I think the simple answer is we'll never know for sure. But the point is, when one of your warships blows up in an enemy port, you're going to want compensation for that. That's an act of war, isn't it? You should be keeping my warships safe. And at that point, Cuba was not an independent country. It was part of Spain. And so we have the Spanish-American War, which basically, bizarrely, 
is is not fought in Spain at all or America. It's fought on basically three island archipelagos. It's fought in Cuba, in Guam, and in the Philippines because those were the closest. Although to be fair, the Philippines aren't very close to America at all. But those were three Spanish territories, very very near America, relative relatively near to America, and the this war only lasted for three months. Now. For those of you, if there are any Americans listening to this going, hang on, America has never created an empire. That is very much something that was created in the 20th century, particularly in World War II, when America was uneasy about fighting for, say, British and French colonies, when it's like, well, we believe in land of the free, home of the brave, and everybody has the right to have a democracy. That's what everybody, that was genuinely the position of America in the 20th century, but that genuinely wasn't the position of America in the 19th century. They, like everybody else, wanted to build an empire. It's worth remembering that when America went independent um, in the 1780s, is when it was formalized, the 13 colonies was a strip of land on the east coast of America. Everything else was Spanish, French, and Native American. So all those other territories were taken, well, there was the Louisiana Purchase, but even when the area was purchased, they still had to get those damn Indians, I'm saying that ironically for a record, off the territory, the, the the Trail of Tears, you know, the um, Indian Wars, you know, these were genocides and these were land grabs. It's uncomfortable for Americans. And I'd please don't start saying, oh, this is a liberal guilt hand wringing. It's like, OK, fine. If you want to accuse me of that, fine. But the fact of the matter is you're building an empire. What right did America have to California in 1783? The answer is no right whatsoever. Might is right. They had the opportunity to grab it. It became commonly spoken in American corridors of power, irrespective of which uh, which party was in power, that there it was America's destiny to rule from coast to coast, to hell, basically, with the Mexican, Spanish, French, and Native Americans. And fine, that's exactly what happened. But don't think that Nevada was always American. It really, really wasn't. So with that in mind, America built a land-based empire, a bit like Russia did. You know, Russia, the Rus, was sort of a group of peoples that lived basically around Moscow when you go back into the Middle Ages. What right did they have to somewhere like Vladivostok, which close, closest landmass to it is Japan? That is a long way from Moscow, okay? So with that in mind, America did build a land empire. But after they'd done all that, they wanted more. So why not go after places like Cuba, the Philippines, Puerto Rico as well? When you look at where Puerto Rico is, it's right in the Caribbean, a place that was crisscrossed with many European powers. America got that one, okay? It was no part of the American War of Independence, and it had nothing to do with the American Civil War. It was to do with empire building later on. It's just America came late to the game and they didn't build much of an empire. So in the 20th century, it was very easy to say that they weren't interested in an empire. That's not actually true. And you want some proof? Here's the proof. So at the Treaty of Paris, which finished the war between Spain and America, America was given the Philippines. Now, when America turned up in the Philippines, they said, well, we're fighting against your imperial aggressors, and the Filipinos weren't exactly 100% convinced, but anybody, my enemy's enemy is my friend, was their logic, and so they got rid of the Spanish out of the Philippines. So imagine the Filipino disgust, and it's like, hang on, all we've done is swap Spain for America as being our overlords. That 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's not fair. And the Philippines put up a bigger fight than Spain did because uh, it lasted about three years. Uh, sorry, three months, the Spanish-American War. Three years is how long the, the war in the Philippines was. And it was brutal jungle fighting. We've got people now in the you know, beginning of the 20th century, you've got sort of, uh, there's no longer breech-loading rifles. It's, it's, you've now got sort of um, uh, rifles that would be similar to something you get in World War I, uh, you know, where they've got the, the, you know, the stock and you know, sort of almost semi-automatic, uh, you know, but there were jungle ambushes. Um, and although ultimately America won that war, it was a brutal war. It was something that left this these veterans scarred. And it was the veterans of that war that were warning the doughboys going off to World War One. Now, World War One did have some fighting in jungles, but the Americans never did any of that. Um, but, it, you know, they were the ones coming back going, you guys think that war's nice. Really, we've just been from a terrible, terrible war. And, you know, modern war is absolutely awful. Beware. And they were right. But the the interesting thing is we have American soldiers fighting in jungles at the turn of the 20th century. Then everything goes quiet in terms of jungle warfare until we get to World War II, where again we have the Philippines. You know, it always I always as a kid wondered why is America fighting in the Philippines? Why is MacArthur saying I shall return and all this kind of stuff? Well, the answer is it was the vestiges of their empire. And when Japan attacked, Japan's a lot closer to the Philippines than America is. Japan managed to capture uh, the Philippines and capture a whole bunch of American troops too. The Americans did fight in jungle conditions. Guam was another place which was something that they won from the Spanish War that they uh, that ended up being taken by the Japanese and they had to fight and get back again. My grandfather didn't serve in Guam. He was in the Navy. He did go to Guam uh, and you know, sort of made some comments to me about the place. But, uh, you know, you, you now have a very American guy. I believe he was born in Ohio going to Guam and seeing it as a liberation of American territory, in this case, from the Japanese. However, World War II, the end of World War II, 
was inadvertently going to be drawing America back into it because French Indochina had been taken over by, well, first of all, Vichy France, and then the Japanese got involved. And so the Americans, as they were trying to do in many places, were arming the locals to fight an insurgency, is what we would use, the term we'd use nowadays, would basically fight a guerrilla war against these imperialist overlords. And the leader of these guerrillas was a guy called Ho Chi Minh. So when the World War II finished, the French very much wanted to go back into Indochina and reclaim their imperialist territory. And America in the 1950s in French Indochina, here comes the twist, if you didn't see it coming already, now called Vietnam, America were the peacemakers between the freedom-fighting guerrillas and the, and the French. And indeed, when Ho Chi Minh did his freedom speech, he quoted from American political sources. The Americans were very much seen as the good guys in the 1950s. Uh, the French basically crumbled at a place called Dien Bien Phu in the early 1950s, at which point Ho Chi Minh was looking for more allies, and so he went to the commies, he went to Russia and China, rather than looking to America, and at which point America, this the study of America, this is the neo-imperialism, Cold War stuff, America in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s were dead set against the spread of communist ideology across the world. Now, in Asia, that was famously referred to as the domino theory. Um, you have America worried about China going communist in 1949. Then you have the Korean War starting a year later, and Korea is split between the communist North and the dict dictatorship, right-wing dictatorship in the South. Then things explode in Vietnam, and half of Vietnam suddenly falls to communism. The thing about domino theory is, of course, it's being discredited, but the point is, when you look at it from the point of view of America in the 1950s, they had a point. You have all these places that have nothing to do with communism. Lenin never went to Saigon or, or to Beijing, but suddenly we got these places that are turning communist. So America, who saw the communists as the bad guys, and this is basically what the Cold War is all about, sent forces in. And we have the Vietnam War that lasts into the 1970s. 1973 was America when the Americans finally left Vietnam. The South was to fall in 75. But throughout South America in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, we have... You see, the thing is, America gets a bad rap. I guess maybe one of the things we, we think of is America as a democracy should be better than that. But all America was doing, in essence, was exactly what the Soviet Union was doing. I just, just quick pause and Che Guevara. There are a lot of people who say it is absolutely disgusting the way the CIA backed local paramilitary forces to hunt down Che Guevara in Bolivia and take him down. That is absolutely disgusting. That is CIA being used as death squads. And they have a point, except it's worth remembering that Che Guevara, that Argentinian that was part of the Cuban Revolution, who had also fought in and tried to raise a revolution in Angola, was now fighting in Bolivia, arming the locals with weapons from Russia. If, if going into a country and stirring up unrest and arming paramilitary forces is wrong, both sides are wrong. What Che Guevara's flaw was is he wasn't as good at it as the CIA. Okay? It's the same rules. You can't pick rules for different sides. You're being biased at that point. But America has had this fascination with 
fighting in jungles. Now, sometimes it might just be simply arming locals, but even if you're arming locals, quite often there are sort of CIA forces or SEAL teams going in, you know, American Rangers, Green Berets, etc., arming and training the locals as well, these covert black op wars. And so America has all kind of always had this fascination of creeping around in the jungles. Now, for those of you who aren't keeping count, I've mentioned four major wars there. Here comes the minor one. The invasion of Granada in 1983. What happened was Granada was a British colony. There we go, another uh, foreign European power. Granada had been a British colony. It had gone independent in the early 1970s. Um, it was taken over by, it had a, a left-wing ruler, then uh, there was a military coup in, in 1979, and it seemed to be going the same way as some of these other places, becoming more communist. So the Americans, without any warning, invaded it in 1983. The, the war lasted days. However, 19 Americans did lose their lives, and there were nine helicopter crashes. Uh, and so it certainly wasn't a bloody affair. 45 Gren uh, Grenadine soldiers uh, died in, in it. This was not the Philippines again, where thousands died, and um, 5,000, if not more, Americans died in the fighting in the Philippines, okay? Uh, tens of thousands of Filipinos died. Also, there were various outbreaks of cholera and malaria that weren't properly being supervised because of the war going on. The Filipino-American War was a really dirty war. It was kind of a proto-Vietnam without the dropping of bombs and things like that. So, with that in mind, you know, Granada, by comparison, was just an absolute piece of cake. It was, it did technically stir up a, 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 a diplomatic incident because Britain was still responsible for protecting Granada at that point and wasn't warned. So, technically, by the literal letter of international war, America had declared war on Britain. <laughs> uh, nice, okay, but that was all smoothed over. But it was a complete American success. So this is the background. Even in the 1980s, America, uh, American people knew that there had been American soldiers fighting in various dirty little wars in, uh, in Central America and things like that, things we'd only half heard of. And you could say there was a bit of a mythos about this. You know, guys slithering around in the jungle bushes with guns and sort of taking out you know, bad Contras and, you know, the Sandinistas, backing the Sandinistas and things like that. I'm using genuine, genuine words, by the way. Uh, they, these are real things. Um, and they were installing horrific right-wing juntas and military dictatorships. Um, to paraphrase, because I want to keep my clean rating here, uh, General Manuel Noriega, who used to rule Panama with an iron fist, it was acknowledged in America. It's like, he's a bad guy but he's our bad guy. And, and and this is the thing, you know, when people start saying that, uh, oh, you know, look at the Cuban revolution, look at how uh, Kennedy tried to overthrow the Cuban revolution with his own counter-revolution, all ended a disaster in the Bay of Pigs fiasco. True, but it's worth remembering that Cuba is not a democracy. You know, Cuba may have an excellent healthcare system. This is what all the left-wing people point out, but it also has a secret police. It has no freedom of press. You know, it's it's not a paradise, okay? It has serious flaws. The fact that it has the NHS on a tropical island is great, but its economy is terrible. It, you know, it has, you know, the people have very few freedoms. So it's almost like what flavor of dictator do you want? Because it's either going in the in the old days, in the in the Cold War era, you have a choice of either being interfered with by the Soviet bloc or by the Western powers. And it's unfair and it's nasty, but America didn't have a monopoly on the bad stuff, okay? So, let's 
let's go back to Predator because the director, I wanted to mention the director here. The director is John McTiernan and oh my God, did he have a hat trick of amazing movies because Predator came out in 1987 and uh, he was under a lot of pressure to keep this under budget and to get pack in the action, okay? And he'd only made one movie before this and it wasn't exactly an action fest. So he was determined to show that, you know, he could do tense scenes and lots of action and it worked really well. It's really interesting listening to his director's commentary on the movie because it's terrible. The, his opening line as the movie starts is, man, I haven't seen this for ages. So he hasn't exactly come with notes. And by the end, this has jogged his memory. So you could basically fast forward half the movie if you just want to hear the director's commentary, because he really gets into his stride about halfway through to the point where as the credits are rolling, he's still going on. You know, he's still remembered stuff. And it's like, this, this is sloppy work. Could you have not have done this and then done it again with him? Because now he's remembering all the good stuff. So, uh, yeah, so John McTiernan directed Predator in 1987. Then a year later, the man directed Die Hard. And then two years later, his next movie was The Hunt for Red October. These are three really good thrillers and quite different as well. You could argue that Hunt for Red October is just as fantastical as Predator, but it's sort of a more grounded thriller than Predator. And Die Hard, in a way, was a reaction to people like Arnold Schwarzenegger because Bruce Willis looks like an everyman. The thing about Arnold Schwarzenegger is it looks like he's being chiseled out of granite in his prime. As people have pointed out with the Terminator, it's like, why does the Terminator have to look like a bodybuilder with a thick Austrian accent? He's an infiltration unit. He sticks out like a sore thumb. Yes, but Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime looked like he was a cyborg. Okay, he looks like he's machine underneath there. And if you'd got a great actor like Anthony Hopkins to play, play the Predator, he wouldn't have just had that physical threat going. So the clever thing is, the Predator in the movie, at one point towards the end, picks up Arnie by the throat and, and holds him up in one arm. And we all know that we couldn't do that with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the point, and when you see Arnie's feet swinging underneath him, you realize the Predator, is, everything Arnie is, the Predator is plus. And so what chance does Arnie have? And we, you know, I keep mentioning these stories about myths and things like that, but it critical part of storytelling is if we know the good guy can defeat the obstacle easily, it's not a very good story. So the fact that we've seen how good these commandos are, followed by the Predator taking them down with ease, is a really clever way of making us feel very sorry for Arnold Schwarzenegger, who looks like he could lift up a truck. Full disclosure, at one point, he does lift up a truck uh, in, in this movie uh, to, to cause the, the big explosion because things have to blow up a lot in this movie. Few other things about the, the cast. Um, Jesse Ventura is uh, sort of quoted as saying, you know, this reminds me of my days of Vietnam, but this is a lot more fun because people weren't shooting at me. Jesse Ventura is being sort of right about that. Jesse Ventura was in a sort of an elite uh, force in Vietnam, and this is true. He did serve uh, for five years, as there's no doubt about that. Um, but it was it was uh, a force that was involved in clearing obstacles on on the coast. And while he was ready to go, and while he was definitely a well trained soldier, he didn't see action in Vietnam, and he certainly didn't spend his time marching through the jungles. But hey, I'm not going to argue with the man, even though he's in his seventies, he could still happily rip my head off. He also has that great line uh, when somebody turns 
turns to him and says, you're hit, you're bleeding, and he says, ain't got time to bleed. Now, apparently Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he does the scene with throwing the machete into the guy's chest and comes up with the line, stick around. Um, <laughs> this, line, this movie is full of great one-liners. Um, apparently th that was actually ad-libbed by Arnie and a reminder that he may be a very big muscular guy, but he's also a very smart guy. Uh, for me personally, uh, the greatest scene in this movie is when, uh, spoiler, Jesse Ventura is uh, shot and he's killed, at which point Bill Duke, Mac, picks up his minigun, old painless as it's called, I'll come on to that in one moment, um, and he starts firing into the into the jungle and then everybody else joins in and literally there is a minute of solid gunfire. Grenades are fired, bullets are shot, it's just noise as people are screaming as the gun's going off and off and off again and again and again. And what happens is they they clip the predator. They find some blood on on a well. His blood, by the way, is a mixture of that glow stick stuff that you get and KY jelly. That's how they created the the look. It was actually quite lo-fi. A lot of the stuff in Predator. Um, but the point is, all that power, all that destructive force, achieved very little. So you could argue that Predator is, in a way, a metaphor for America's impact in jungle warfare because in Vietnam. They had a huge amount of power and they didn't get what they wanted. And then you got all these activities in these covert ops in the jungles and they didn't, it didn't always go their way. And actually kind of sometimes they undeniably made the, the situation worse. However, it does have a great line connected with that when they find the blood. Um, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger says, if it bleeds, we can kill it. Subtle. I love the logic there. It's almost Aristotelian in its thought process there, Arnie, or Dutch as he's called. Um, also, I have to do a shout out to Arnie and Carl Weathers. So again, apologies, Carl, for getting uh, getting your name wrong earlier on. But uh, when they have the most manly handshake in cinema history. When they first meet, they slap their hands together in a way that no human beings ever do when they shake hands. And their biceps bulge and the sweat's dribbling off. They're probably just covered in baby oil at that point, but it's a super manly thing. But the point is that all these muscles, all these guns are pointless against an effective jungle predator. And uh, the fight at the end is about using traps and booby traps and ingenuity, which is exactly what the Viet Cong did against the Americans in Vietnam. So, uh, you know, again, you have these things where I'm pretty sure 1987, I'm sure there's a bunch of American veterans who would have sat down, watched that movie and went, this is a fantastical version of what I actually lived through. And, uh, you know, maybe that caused a little bit of pain for them. I've got one other little nugget. You got Billy the sort of Native American scout guy, uh, where, again, great line where Arnie goes up to him and goes, you know, what's wrong, Billy? No man. You're scared of no man. And he goes, whatever out, whatever's out there is no man. But that was played by Sonny Landham. And unfortunately, Sonny died uh, last year in 2017. Uh, but he was a big, tough, violent guy to the extent that he had bodyguards. Now, this isn't bodyguards to protect him. This is bodyguards to basically diffuse the situation about anybody around him and 
it, you know, he was a tough guy. And it's, again, another sign that on set there was a lot of machismo going on. And uh, uh, Carl Weathers tells a wonderful story. goes, you know, look, to have this body you need to be in your prime. You need to work out. He goes, so what I did was I got up before everybody else and, you know, worked hard in the gym for maybe a couple of hours and then got back just as everybody was waking up and just be sitting there having breakfast, pretending as if my body was naturally, oh, you're going to the gym. Okay. Well, you know, maybe I'll see you later because I don't need it kind of thing. Um, so yeah, the, the, the whole thing sounded like half hell, half fun. Predator is... You know, some people say it's a guilty pleasure. I'm going to argue against that. It's a well-put-together movie. Is it subtle? No. Are you looking for the character development? Uh-uh. But then again, Pride and Prejudice is terrible at gunfights, okay? For what it does, it does a really good job. And, you know, when you then see what John McTiernan goes on to make, you can see that he's taken everything that he's learnt from Predator and he grow, expands on it and grows it. And he becomes a more and more confident director as he comes through that trilogy of just amazing films. Oh, by the way, the one that broke, the, bro, broke his run was the early 1990s movie Medicine Man, which was at the time hailed as a huge, big potential movie because, you know, John Tiernan had come off these three mega films and it was starring Sean Connery and it was in Jungles again. Uh, Really, really didn't work. Please don't bother with uh, Medicine Man. But anyway, Predator, if you have not seen it, I know I've given away a few bits here, but I certainly haven't given away all of it. If you have not seen Predator, watch that film. It, it's just a lot of fun. Grab some popcorn and just flip into just entertain me mode and you will not be disappointed. This is one of the things where Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, he you can see why he's a movie star. He was never an actor. He was always a movie star and he's mesmerizing. He absolutely absorbs the screen, but you've got Stan Winston at his cutting edge as well with his amazing and unique character creature design. So it's a great film that actually is tapping into some of America's base fears about these jungle fighting and about their brave American boys. Are they ever going to be seen again as they get absorbed into the jungle and fighting this unseen enemy? Literally what had happened a generation earlier in Vietnam and beyond. So it does actually have some history to be said too. Right, that is Gem wrapping up Neon. Again, I want to remind you, please keep this conversation going by giving us a good review. Thank you very much on whatever app you're listening to this in terms of podcasts. We're neonpodcast.com. We're Neon Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to talk to me, if you want to say, hey, look, if you can extract imperialist history from Predator, what have you got on dot, 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 then, well, throw me some challenges. I'd love to hear from you. I'm simply Jem Daduccio. The link will be in the uh, in the below details. Uh, I'm uh, Jem Daduccio on Twitter. I'm History Gems with a G on Facebook, where I regularly throw out history articles and stuff like that. Uh, thanks very much for listening. There'll be more Neon Podcast goodness coming soon. Anytime. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.